I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Eve Fairbanks, is a journalist and essayist who grapples with the processes and meanings of change in cities, countries, landscapes, morals, values, and our ideas about ourselves. A former congressional correspondent for the New Republic, her essays and long-form journalism have been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and The Guardian. Her reporting has been funded by grants from the Fulbright Program, the Institute of Current World Affairs, the Daniel Pearl Investigative Journalism Initiative, the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, and the Writing Invisibility Project at the Max Planck Institute. From a young age growing up in Virginia, Eve was transfixed by the moral questions raised by the Civil War and the unfinished changes in its aftermath. Drawn to also exploring racial tensions in post-apartheid South Africa, she traveled there on writing grants in 2009, moving first to Cape Town and then to Johannesburg, where she still lives. Her recently published book, The Inheritors, An Intimate Portrait of South Africa's Racial Reckoning, is the subject of today's interview. First of all, welcome to Delving In. Thanks so much. Since your book focuses so heavily on the complexities and conundrums of internal motivation, let's talk first about your own motivation to write this book. Such an interesting way to put the focus of the book. I love that. I grew up in Northern Virginia, outside of Washington, D.C., and in some respects, it's almost a very personality-less city. People read about Washington. It's, you know, just... The bureaucracy and but it's it's on the cusp of what was the north in the civil war and what was the south and it's very very close to the old seat of the confederacy and that sounds like history but i think it just still felt very present to me when i was a child the these sort of cultural divisions these divisions in the way people thought about things this wasn't very long ago, this was in the late 1990s, but the, the middle school very near me was named after a Confederate general. It was never clear in the area where I grew up what the message was about the Confederacy, even the Civil War itself, how much it was really over. And I then, after college, I started working in Washington and interviewing all of your politicians. I was covering Congress. I was at many press conferences, as, as will happen in Washington, where there are way more journalists than there are humans of any other kind. And you can start to feel that you're watching a little bit of a kabuki and that you're very, very far from the way people are really experiencing politics. And it's the, the political life of any country is mainly experienced by its citizens, although it may be decided by a small set of people. So I just wanted to get away from that scene for a time being, get away from that type of reporting and also get outside of the US. Uh, I had met people in other countries who were writers who used to go to France in order to better understand Germany, which is where they were from. And I find Americans don't, don't do that as much to try to try to get a comparative sense. And so I ended up moving to South Africa in 2009, in part because I think it's the country with a history regarding race that is by far, by far the closest to America's in a way that isn't really talked about that much. We have other comparison points we often use, but 
that is a country whose history on race has a lot of overlaps with the United States. So it's, it's very interesting to look at and to learn from. Yeah, in, in your book, you wrote, uh, over the years I lived in South Africa, I sometimes felt I was looking at America in a funhouse mirror, at once recognizable and magnified so I could see its emergent features more clearly. That was really well put and, and really interesting uh, image of a funhouse mirror. I guess a funhouse mirror, I mean, it could be amusing, but it's also distorting and also intriguing and also spooky, <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. So South Africa in the 19th century, it had groups of European descended settlers who believed that they were motivated, kind of driven by a sort of a manifest destiny. And they considered themselves torchbearers of freedom. They threw off the British Empire. They kind of um, seceded from the British Empire and they created republics with constitutions explicitly based on the American one. Could we just uh, back up a little bit? I mean, in terms of the history of South Africa, um, it started with, with the Boers, with the Dutch. And the Dutch were, for a time, I guess, the most powerful colonial power, and they were superseded by the British and others. But uh, I could see what you're saying, that they thought of themselves as kind of a bastion of not just liberty, but progress and the Enlightenment, and um, you know that they had this kind of God-given right and responsibility. And, and that does have very strong echoes of American uh, assumptions of exceptionalism and having a right to the land, uh, even though we weren't the first ones here. Yeah, something I love, one little thing about the Dutch at the time that they were briefly this immense colonial power and sending via the Dutch East India Company, sending a lot of people to create colonies in a lot of places that they had a word for the system of dikes that they made to kind of make it so that Amsterdam and The Hague wouldn't be flooded. And, and it's the same word. They actually lifted the word from John Locke. And it's a word that also means persuasion in a kind of rationalistic way. We're going to persuade the rivers to kind of bend to our human will and do what we want. And they had a real faith for a period, that period in their capacity to rule the world or almost right to, right to kind of bridle nature, right to go to these so-called wild places, uncivilized places and tame them and turn them to a garden of Eden and, and uplift them. That was an aspect of the enlightenment, especially there. Yeah, so there was a tremendous, uh, I think, overconfidence in the ability of the uh, human brain to, to, as you say, tame nature and, and to improve on nature. And it's really only fairly recently that we're starting to see the downside of that attitude, you know, the, of, of that overconfidence, as opposed to recognizing that nature is incredibly complicated and if you control it in one way, it becomes uncontrolled in another way. I mean, it's, yeah, that's true. It's easy to see in retrospect that there are elements of chance, elements of whatever momentary was happening that, that gave the appearance of a civilization that almost deserved to triumph in certain locales. So, you know, in South Africa, they had guns, they had weapons at a certain point, which gave them the sense that even in some teleological or historical way, they, they deserved to triumph 
there. They deserve to run it. They deserve to triumph over local inhabitants. I want to say, though, I mean, South Africa does have very different demographics. It always did. It was much more, it was, it was more densely settled than a lot of parts of the North American continent. So a different, I don't want to say compromise because it wasn't very compromising, but a different method was followed by the, the European settlers in South Africa, whereby ultimately they tried to contain indigenous South Africans, black South Africans, much more than they ever were able to, in their mind, defeat them. And at, and at certain points, make treaties with them and so on. And so you always had a situation in South Africa where white people, as they really only be, came to be known in the 20th century, but were, were, were never a majority of the population. And this meant that that things played out differently and transpired differently. But you mentioned the funhouse mirror. I mean, one thing that I saw in South Africa and that I do see there, I live there still, but over, over 13 years was there are at this stage, a lot of institutions like the government, like certain universities, like certain newspapers that are almost entirely run by people of color. They are managed, they, the executives would be people, almost entirely people of color in a way that doesn't really exist in the US. After a history that had a lot of overlaps, a history of white domination. And it's interesting to see what tensions people, even in those new positions of power, fin finally achieving them, still feel. Yeah, and just to clarify, if I'm not mistaken, it's the South Africa's population is about 80% black, something like that. I think it's been changing over the last some years. At the turn of the century, it would have been yeah, less, but it's about 85%. 85%. And then of, of the white population, it's about two-thirds uh, Dutch descent, I think something like that. And, and I, I imagine that's why in your book you follow an Afrikaner, which is the term the Dutch descendants use for themselves as opposed to an English uh, white person. And you really go into incredible depth. And, and, and just to, to review here, you follow uh, with really in-depth, intimate portraits, a black South African mother named Dipuo, who was an activist against apartheid, and her daughter, Malaika, a, a gifted student navigating the turbulence of the early post-apartheid years, and Cristo, a proud Afrikaner man. And, many, many vignettes, and also there are other characters too, those are just the most central ones. And l let's talk about each one of them. And I think the emphasis that I got from your book, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, is that both sides, both the, the blacks and the whites, are haunted by either guilt and or shame. And there's a kind of psychological baggage that just can't be shaken off. And it's just so complicated. I, I think there's a desire, there was a desire of, of the world as well as in South Africa that, oh, post-apartheid, you know, with the enlightened leadership of Mandela, that we can have a post-racial society. And I think you see that in the United States too, that there's this hope to just get beyond this kind of superficiality of skin color. And yet the legacy goes on and on and on because of the complexities of the psychological reverberations. So I think your book is a very psychological book, and I, I 
it doesn't take a psychologist like me <laughs> to notice that. <laughs> Are you a psychologist? I am. I'm recently retired. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate that you say that. A lot of us, including myself, when I, even when I got ready to move to South Africa, there, there were certain contours that I knew that apartheid, which was modeled on Jim Crow, actually explicit, very explicitly, had been in place for 50 years, that it was a very punishing, very, very total and punishing system of segregation. And then you had Nelson Mandela, who miraculously managed to undo this knot. Uh, and he, he deserves the credit that he gets. Absolutely. And then the camera pans away because it's, it's, it's nice to have that ending. It's quite inspiring. Um, there were a lot of people who predicted us that, that apartheid in South Africa would only end in a civil war. That would be the only way it could end, which is resonant right at the moment. But instead you got a democracy run by the formerly oppressed, their, their political movement, but committed to non-racialism, to a very progressive constitution, even giving amnesty to some former jailers, former white political leaders who had participated in this system. But yeah, I almost found that the more people tried to ignore the way in which the sort of prejudices of the past, and, and I don't even want to say prejudices, but almost the architecture of the whole society, the, the more they tried to ignore it, the more it would actually motivate their own actions. This is where it just sounds so incredibly psychological that if you don't acknowledge your pain and your suffering and your guilt and your baggage, then it controls you. You know, it comes out sideways, as they say. <laughs> you know that, and I think you describe uh, the characters. Uh, Dipuo is as trying to do that uh, post-apartheid of you know, trying to spare her daughter Malika of the pain and suffering that she went through as a activist. But just don't you just don't talk about it that much, and you know, just let's pretend that we're beyond it already, and it just doesn't work. Yeah, so Malika is one of the three main characters in the book. These are real people, but I try to try to write them with a lot of depth, so I say characters. But she was born in 1992. She's what South Africans sometimes call born free, someone who's supposed to have no memories of the past. And that made it extra painful in a way as she grew up, as she, as she described it, to encounter inequities that she would be led to think were her fault ways that people treated her, ways they reacted to her, things that they would or wouldn't give her. And, you know, the whole theory was that it wasn't supposed to be happening because of her race. So first of all, that can lead to a kind of self-blame, but I found it really interesting. She had a has a very strong relationship with her mother, who's also a figure in the book. And her mother was a hardcore anti-apartheid activist, really uh, fought discrimination fought the oppression and prejudice of, of the of the white supremacist regime but it was her mother who was one of the most adamant that she should try to live that her daughter should try to live in a way that almost pretended that there was no more racism that there was no more discrimination that everything had been reset to zero and her mother and I had conversations about it. And she said with 
grief that she just there were a lot there was a lot of recompense a lot of reward a lot uh, that she never got for her own suffering or her own work and she hoped that it would all be worth it if her daughter would be able to live the life that she never had and and almost not think about any of these things anymore and it was such an important goal for Zipuo the mother that it, she started to have to act as if it was happening, to act as if this was the life Malika was living. And I think that's something you'll find in the book is people uh, finding themselves acting out, <laughs> acting as if they live in the worlds that they wish were the worlds that were real. Yeah, and I guess that's one of the kind of key principles in, in psychotherapy, is helping people to see reality for what it is rather than for what they wish it to be, because you can't solve problems if you wish them away, and it just doesn't usually work. <laughs> yeah, something that frustrated me, I have to say, I mean, frustrated me. I, I found it notable when I started covering politics, thinking about it, that in, we really do often stick to a materialistic view in the U.S., or st almost strive for that, that, okay, why are people voting for this candidate? Well, it's because of X and Y material circumstances in their town or, or this economic trend line. And that may be predictive, but we know in our personal lives that, that we're so much more of a bundle of kind of hopes, fantasies, wishing to see. And you get an odd situation in South Africa that I found very resonant with the US, which is that in a way that is almost irresolvable. No one can agree on reality, on what the country actually looks like in very surprising, like literally physically, like what you are seeing with your eyeballs. There's, there's very profound fights over that there. I just wanted to quote uh, from uh, Stephen Biko, a very prominent uh, activist from, I guess, the 80s, right? And, and before, I'm sure. The 1970s. In yeah. 70s. He said, uh, black people need to defeat the one element in politics which is working against them, a psychological feeling of inferiority. And then he went on to say, you had to liberate yourself from caring what white people thought of you. I thought that was really profound because a lot of the passages in your book talk about what black people think white people are thinking about them and then having to react to that. And it's just so preoccupying. And, and also in the other direction, too, uh, white people's preoccupation with what black people think of them, especially post-apartheid, some, somehow wanting forgiveness but not wanting forgiveness. And if, 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 if the forgiveness comes too easily, then you feel like your, your guilt is not expunged. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of, of, of obsession with these kind of issues. And it, it just, I felt kind of weighed down just imagining it. <laughs> uh. <laughs> it's a very buoyant book. Um, it's it's interesting that I, you know I I don't feel that the book is is dark ultimately myself, but I also think that there's something about talking about what you yourself have witnessed that's it's unburdening. So I almost have I feel the book has a kind of lightness to it, oddly enough, but not that the subject matter is light. I think maybe there's, it's, it's a little bit more known, although we could talk, it's interesting to talk about, but the, the idea that 
I think W.E.B. Du Bois called it the double consciousness. So the consciousness of yourself as a person of color and then the consciousness of what others think of you, which is very different, but you're really having to live with, with that second consciousness in order to survive. You have to, you have to know um, how you're perceived. What I didn't expect as much in South Africa was over a very long time, really becoming aware of how much certain white South Africans wanted to be respected by black South Africans. They wanted to sort of, on the one hand, know that they were absolved in some way. They wanted, somebody put it to me as the black gaze. They wanted, they wanted a kind of love, a kind of respect from black people that would never show up in initial interviews with some of these people because they, they seem very defiantly like, call me a white supremacist, call me a racist, I don't even care, whatever, you know. And underneath that, I, I, I do feel over a long time, I learned Afrikaans, learned how to speak pretty fluent Afrikaans. I really found that, <laughs> that part of that defiance, I think, was a feeling that you were never going to get respect from black people, but, but there was still that wish. There was still the wish to, it was so complex, but to be kind of loved. So that's something that I really delve into and that I, I feel like is not talked about that, that much. You don't frame it this way in the book, but it's, it's, there's a kind of Christian feel to it of wanting absolution, you know, as if you, know, you can go to a kind of a nationwide public confession and be absolved. I mean, the degree of the yearning for absolution, even after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was these hearings that were supposed to kind of wrap up some of the loose ends of this regime. And that was in place of, in place of punishment, right? That was in place of a Nuremberg, yeah. yeah in right, place. exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, so so it, the premise was, and there were people who were imprisoned. There were people who were involved in crimes under party who were imprisoned. But, but the idea was that some people could come, especially lower level guys, police officers who were following orders and give and say what they did. And as long as they told the tr full truth, then they would, they would be absolved. They would receive amnesty. And that just... I think it was a great idea. I think it relieved pressures at the time. I think it, there was something that it did, but the the unresolved yearning for a kind of final forgiveness and absolution among white South Africans. Again, even those who would never say that, like if you were to like, are you waiting around to be forgiven by black people? They would they would laugh and say, I, I don't care. You know, I think we're the victims now. I think there's reverse racism, blah, blah, blah. And yet at a very deep level, you find that. And, the, and it's also not black South Africans job to give it to them. So in a way, there's this loose string left hanging. So this would be a good segue to talk a little bit about Christo, uh, who was an Afrikaner man who was in the army, I guess. Um, he didn't really see a whole lot of action, although he did wind up killing somebody almost by accident. But he was a very, very proud Afrikaner man who really, I think, needed to have an Afrikaner identity and to feel proud of it. And he sort of went against the, 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 the current, it seems to me, you know, in, in the uh, years leading up to the end of apartheid and then beyond. 
And yet his feelings about black people, I think, are very complicated. Very. I really admire how non-judgmental you were and how you depicted him. I mean, you kind of leave it up to the reader whether to judge or not. Yeah, I try to give some different views on him. He grew up in the 1970s in a farm farming area, and somebody else from that region, a sort of white farming region, once told me that apologetically, but that sincerely, very sincerely growing up, he thought that South Africa was, I think he said 70 or 80% white because of the segregation. That was how it looked. And, you know, it's one thing to be taught once in school in a very passing way, oh, here's the statistical demographics of your country. But he just said, just visually and emotionally, like it was just the people I saw around me. That was really what I thought. So it was just this giant shock when segregation fell. And Christo had a little bit of that experience. His best friends, which is common, were black children of the workers on his father's farm with whom he felt really close and felt a lot of love. While I think coming to understand that their life trajectories would be different from his and, and almost having to, having to come to feel that that is appropriate because it's, otherwise it would be painful to see that differentiation. And anyway, he ended up being one of the last soldiers to be drafted into the apartheid army. There was a draft. And right at the end, right before that army was dissolved amid kind of the leaders of the army wringing their hands and saying, oh gosh, this whole thing was a hot mess. Uh, we're so sorry, never should have done it, bad idea. But right before he left that military and his unit was dissolved, he did, he was a participant in a killing, which is sort of semi-accidental. He had been on an order. And I think what was not fully understood, I sometimes feel like we just don't give people enough in a democracy enough credit for being deep, deep people and often smart people. We we, it's now kind of cool to think that democracies have problems because people are very stupid overall. But his issue was that he was, for, he was sort of legally absolved for that killing and allowed to then enroll at university and so on. But it's weight on him and the question of what, whether what he had done was effectively criminal, very immoral. The question of whether his own upbringing, which had been in this environment that he hadn't controlled, was in some way a moral fault kind of dogged him for the rest of his life and motivated him. And he did end up circling back to a degree of pride in Afrikaner culture, in Afrikaner, you know, that he hadn't, hadn't had as a teen really, but, but he circled back to that as an adult. And he went rather far with that, but I, I wanted to talk about him because he was, um, I think there were a lot of other people who yeah, and you spent quite a few passages in, in your book talking about his running of a dorm at the university, which eventually got banned because it was a segregated uh, Afrikaner-only dorm. It got banned, and then he reconstituted it off campus, and the the university allowed that to continue. And it was just this incredible segregationist pride. He seemed to assume that you could not have that kind of pride without having a separate existence, a separate culture, and, and one that was really a kind of supremacist kind of 
backbone to it, it seemed to me, even though he might have individual relationships with, with black people. I think there was just this kind of sense of superiority. Oddly, he had great individual relationships with black people. In fact, he r simultaneously ran one of the few integrated law firms in the town where he worked with a black partner. So it was all quite complex. Yeah, I mean, I met him, you know, there was a, a dormitory in South Africa that a university where effectively the campus resegregated after integrating. And I spent a lot of time investigating why. And he was this bete noir figure where progressive, mostly white progressive on campus would say, it's all this person's fault and he's horrible and he's a flaming racist and, and he's just a prime mover. And I remember thinking like, can this whole university have fallen apart because of one man? That's an interesting idea. And so I ended up going to meet him and, and spending, spending a lot of time with him. And I, and I also ended up feeling like, like he was more representative of a wider group of people, but that there's a lot in this book about white self-identified progressives and that their identification, their fixation on him as the sort of problem, this one almost Trumpist white supremacist type figure, I'm not saying Trump is a white supremacist, but that, that type of a figure that it said, it also said a lot about them and what they needed to believe about what was going wrong. Yeah, one of the more fascinating parts of your book was about liberal hypocrisy. I don't know if you use that term, but it certainly comes across very clearly that on the one hand, you have people like Christo who could have really positive relationships with blacks, and, and you mentioned other Afrikaner uh, people who did, and, and, and yet the, the liberals, you had a, a, a sense of the, the liberals would post-apartheid try to acquaint themselves with the black culture, like take African dance classes or learning black languages, and, and you write that vanishingly few did. You know, so there was a kind of lip service in a way to wanting to be accepting, but not really the acceptance only was, was very shallow. And you also mentioned one particular person, Mrs. Martin, who would invite Malaika to her house after school and make them snacks. And, and Malaika was very uncomfortable with her because she felt like she was put on a pedestal that she could do no wrong and, and, and that she felt that Mrs. Martin was almost thinking, this child is too good for black people. And so there's a kind of discomfort with being treated too well as being, well, what's the ulterior motive here? White progressives, there were many under apartheid and there were a lot who who voted to end, who voted to change the constitution. So there was a whole range of, of white South African attitudes. I, I would say white progressives had a greater expectation that in a black run South Africa and a fully integrated multiracial South Africa, that they would be appreciated, they would be accepted. There's also a little story I tell of a, a man who was working with a high level black South African political leader in the 1980s under apartheid to kind of come up with policies to end segregation. And they worked very close together and they had midnight phone calls. And he, he felt like he was the best friend of this big black leader. After segregation fell and that man, the, the black leader entered government, he stopped returning the white progressives calls. He just didn't need him as much anymore. He had a lot of other allies. And, and the person who told me about that was friends with that person and, and said he, that that man drank himself to death. There was a real lack of anticipation 
among white progressives that they would also perhaps become less important to the story of the country, that they wouldn't be totally at its vanguard. And some of them became quite resentful and, and became much less progressive because of that. And as you say in the book, many of them left, that by and large, the, the whites who are leaving South Africa tend to be progressives, which is really interesting, and that it's the um, more reactionary people who are kind of staying put. So it's, it's very complicated, and I, I don't want to make it sound like you're, you're saying that it was all hypocrisy. I think, is, as always, there's a mixture of motives, you know, some of it um, altruistic and some of it self-serving, and there's this, this complicated contradictory kind of feelings and motives involved. And that's it's part of what I took away from your book is that it's never as simple as it seems. Yeah, somebody called the book, they said, gosh, it's like a psychological chess game. Yeah, I, th I think I, I don't necessarily see some of these feelings that I describe as, as totally immoral or the wrong feelings. I think I think what I noticed over and over and what I say is that people just did not anticipate how their feelings were going to shift once integration proceeded much further. And that itself was a struggle. People would yeah, battle their own emotions, their own mixed emotions about crime and memory and whatever. And there's also a lot of... Um difficulties with attribution of problems. So in, in social psychology, there's something called the attribution bias. And what that means is that when something, someone does something bad, if it's the other person, it's because of their character. But if you do something bad, it's because of your circumstances. You know, and that, that's a very, very, very common attribution bias. So relating it to this, I mean, the, the problems post-apartheid, you know, the whites not not universally, but would often blame blacks for their their, their character, that they, they didn't have what it takes to make a modern country, and they need the white people to, to help them do that or to do it for them. And the, the blacks, of course, would not at all agree to that. You know, they would say, no, it's because of the circumstances leading up to apartheid that they were left with, in, with very poor um, preparation and, and resources. Uh, to, to, to take over as they were supposed to. And you, you also talk in the book about the complexities of how the country was left economically at the end of apartheid because of the uh, embargoes. The economy was really on, on the brink of collapse. And so that's the, that's the point where it's handed over. So there was a lot of pressure to bring the economy back to a uh, high state and that involve a lot of complicated decisions about to what extent to leave the white power structure intact. I, I don't know if I'm getting that right, but... Um. Yeah, um, that's, I mean, that's a perfect way of putting it. So one example of that in South Africa is, the, is agriculture, which I found really fascinating as a kind of image of or reflection of a like synecdoche of, of the whole, because there was a lot of pride under apartheid. White South Africans had a lot of pride about the, this beautiful farming landscape. It looks very developed, very Iowa, but nicer. Um, ranches, fenced ranches, fat cows. And by African standards, very wealthy, a wealthy country, right? No, it never was wealthy, but... It was never, okay. The white areas were. <laughs> yeah, the white areas were wealthy. <laughs> 
and there was a real effort too to kind of talk about the way white people had built up the country, so to speak, that to the 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 wonderful skyscrapers, the fifty floor skyscraper downtown with a viewing deck and a rotating window, the the universities, these beautiful, wonderful educational institutions, and then this glittering agricultural landscape of great grace and beauty that that there was a strong effort in the 80s to sort of talk this up as kind of the norm of good management and efficiency. And it was really kind of hidden in the discourse that the, the country was bankrupt, virtually bankrupt. Uh, the government was corrupt. And, and it, was, it was sort of partly... Partly, you know, white South Africans gave up power or that regime gave up power in order to offload a kind of cratering asset <laughs> that very soon was going to become a burden. If we were talking about the economic situation leading up to and, and uh, following the end of apartheid, you make some very good points about uh, some of the accomplishments of the new black-led government that they massively increased the electricity provision. I mean, the, 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 the black areas were incredibly poor. I mean, the, the level, the rate of, this, of pay and salaries were ridiculously low. And so there's sort of nowhere to go but up in a sense, and, and, but it, it, it had to go up for massive numbers of people. And there was some of that. You also wrote an example. There was a mine called Penga's Mine that, that didn't close because black workers demanded higher wages. It closed because the international consensus on asbestos danger reached South Africa in the 1990s. And you also wrote that small farms could no longer compete in a restored global market. So black South Africans were, in some cases, allotted land, but not enough land to make for a massive farm. And so they, they failed. And they didn't fail only from lack of expertise, but also because of the global economic situation. There's really interesting, you know, factoids in there. I like that you connected those. Yeah. The way I originally wrote the book had those ideas connected more explicitly. So that's, that's interesting. I mean, I write in the book that the, paradoxically, the idea that the past regime in South Africa, the apartheid regime, was immoral and unjust, but bureaucratically highly efficient, operationally sound, kind of brilliant in a organizational way, that that idea, oddly enough, has grown stronger since its fall. It has resonance with the uh, often quoted saying that Mussolini at least made the, the trains run on time. <laughs> but I heard that's not true. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter. It does, you, know, you yeah. just have to believe it's true, right? Or that right. Hitler was very efficient, you know, in whatever he did. I think I was interested in, in that and in really untangling what was true in that and what was a kind of idea that was held on to by both black and white South Africans, actually. Because of... You can you can enter space with institutions in you know Washington where I had been or colleges or schools whatever where you are the premise becomes that they were in some way glorious in the past that they taught very well everything was great and and now you know the struggle is to retain that standard 
or even like I think of publishing houses, they're all about now diversity and access. And I was, I was saying, you know, there's certain ways about the way books are acquired that just have never worked in my view. And a, a friend of mine was like, I don't, what, you know, we're just thinking retain what we have plus add diversity and you lose a focus on the problems with the original, if that makes any sense. And so that's a huge, huge thing that can be understood in South Africa is um, now trying to live up to. There's also a kind of mathematical impossibility. You know, the, the, if the white population has this image of prosperity that now just has to be transferred to the, the black population without losing any of the original prosperity for the whites. How, how do you balance that? I mean, you'd have to increase the income of the whole country like tenfold, twentyfold, I mean, in order for that to, to work. I mean, if there's going to be a reduction in inequality, then there's a reduction in inequality, not just from raising the, the, the lower paid, it's also at some point reducing the higher paid. And, and of course, people, once they have power or wealth, most people don't want to give it up. You know, it was one of the very first things that made me want to take a more psychological approach because I got to South Africa and I was I was very struck by how many people argued as if effectively the country could have stayed exactly the same, but somehow also become totally just and incorporated like 85% of the population into an economy that had been designed only for 15% without without any substantial changes, without any of those 15% kind of experiencing anything unexpected. And the fact that people who I were getting to, I was getting to know and who were very intelligent people were kind of also making those arguments and bound to that idea. I started to think like, I just, I have to figure out, I want to understand psychologically what pressures are on them that makes them make these arguments because on the face of it, it's crazy. The country was going to become something very different when the 85% of the population that had been prevented from walking in the nicest areas with a pass were incorporated into this society. Right. So I, I don't know that you use the term white privilege, but that's sort of part of what needs to be given up if you're going to have a just country. It's, it's, it's very, very hard to do. And so instead, uh, you have uh, widely held stereotypes about the native black population by whites, which is that they're inept, lazy, vengeful criminals who, after being given the reins, ruin the country's economy. And, that, and I don't know how widespread that view is, but it's probably too wide, <laughs> you know. Well, it's too wide. It's very deeply, it's very deeply rooted. But I do want to say, which I think I sometimes find, sometimes Americans can have a little trouble getting their heads around. That idea is very deeply rooted among Black South Africans as well. The it's so it's not only white privilege. Yeah, yeah, and that really raises the question of an internalized uh, racism. That it, from your book, it, it seemed that there were plenty of examples of black people kind of internalizing the view that whites have of them of not being capable. And also this the added complication of black and black crime, which is uh, an issue that sort of resonates with what's happening in the United States too. And you know, there was, I guess, quite a bit of, of crime by blacks toward blacks in the lead up to the end of apartheid, I think you write about. And I don't know if part of that was because 
white enclaves were not really accessible, you know, for, for crime, for instance. Yeah, there was a there was a ton before. There was a lot of that that maybe had had some political motives. There is a phenomenon that occurs that's occurred afterwards, which sometimes called xenophobic riots, so to speak, or xenophobia. And it's where immigrants from countries like Malawi and and Zimbabwe will be, and sometimes more north, Somalia, uh, will be attacked. And and there's an element in there of, at least in, in how people spoke about it or interpreted it to me. There's obviously an, econo- there's an economic reason why that occurs, but there's also an element, as people described it to me, of seeing in other Africans what you don't see in yourself or what you're ashamed that you don't have. So there are Zimbabweans that come into South Africa who very rapidly get jobs. It's not very hard to explain why they sometimes feel they can't take a bad employer to a labor relations board. It's the kind of immigrant dynamics that you get all over of why certain employers prefer um, immigrant workers. But it's it reminds some black South Africans of comments made about them by whites for ages that they sometimes still fear are true, even after the end of apartheid. So that they are lazy, that they, for whatever reason, don't want to work, that they have a bad attitude, etc. So it's a source of of a lot of kind of bitterness. I mean, I, I had have had many friends in South Africa and in other African countries say, you know, perhaps Africans talk more than than some people of color in, in other societies about internalized racism because in most African countries, the white rulers are gone. They're not leading it directly anymore. But people still behave towards each other in ways that are clearly kind of have to do with how Black people were seen under colonialism. So you really have to look at it. So Steve Biko's hope that it would be possible one day for Blacks to not be concerned with what white people think of them. I mean, it just seems like that's such a rarity, if it, if it can happen at all. And, and yet that does seem to be the hope. I also see in the United States that, you know, just let's have a post-racial society and not have to think about it anymore. And I mean, I just wonder how many generations it takes for something like that to occur, if at all. It's funny you ask that question because there's a kind of discourse in South Africa whereby each new generation, there's a hope that they will finally be the generation that isn't burdened by by the past. And that itself is burdensome. That idea itself is burdensome. And you almost get a kind of continual reseeding of, of a problem whereby each generation feels pressured to ignore realities. I'll give one analogy that somebody gave to me that I thought was really visually almost helpful. They said, imagine that, that, that you had a car and somebody took it. And the analogy is to South Africa itself, to the land. So imagine somebody took your car and then you, you didn't see it for ages and they took it away and they refashioned it into an airplane and they gave it back to you and 
said, like, go ahead and fly this. Good luck. And also, elements of the plane had been stolen off of the plane. So the plane actually <laughs> didn't really work, right? And then you have people who are inside this car slash plane, you know, four people, two people, whatever, and they are arguing and they're getting really partisan and they are fighting or they're, they're, they're fighting, you know, a kind of race-based fight, whatever. That argument inside the plane is, is, is going to add to the sense of chaos. It's going to add to the problem. But if everyone got along, if everyone understood each other, that does not mean that that plane is going to fly, that people are going to be able to fly the plane, right? And that, that was, somebody was saying that about South Africa, which is that, yes, it's a problem. The misunderstandings between race groups and partisanship and tribalism there. But there are really big problems with sort of the structure of society itself. But that knowing what you're dealing with and being honest about it is step one. Right. I, I think what you're talking about is expectations. You know, if the, if the expectations are too large, you're bound to be disappointed and then the finger pointing begins. And the expectations, not just by South Africans, but also the whole world was looking on South Africa as the sort of model of how to reconcile the past and how to move beyond it. And uh, I mean, Mandela was such an international hero uh, when he became president, uh, you know, that I think the expectations were impossible to, to meet, really. They were, and because of, I mean, the book, and I think how people experience the country is in contrast to a kind of utopian expectation. I do want to say, I mean, I feel like the country, and it, it's funny to say this at this point in the conversation, but I, I feel South Africa is at, at about the 80th percentile of its possible trajectories. That's not, doesn't sound too bad. It's not <laughs> bad. I mean, there were possibilities that were so devastating, but... There is a new middle class. Um, there's a woman in the book who just exceeds academically and almost as a person. I mean, she's just so phenomenal, awesome. I think like a friend, like fabulous to spend time with. Just beyond what you could even have imagined someone coming from, you know, coming from that country that existed in the 80s. Could we also talk about not just the, the black middle class uh, that I assume is growing, but also the black elite, that there were black elites that somehow uh, have occupied the slots that used to be to white elites, some of them. And you talk about one of them in particular, uh, a man named Mike, who became Uncle Mike to, to Malaika, who was fabulously wealthy. And I guess he noticed something that Malaika had written and admired it and invited her over and wound up informally adopting her and she really got to see what it was like to, to live in a very wealthy environment and I just sort of wonder if the average very poor black person how they look upon black elites do they they feel proud that okay oh, now we have our rich people too <laughs> or is, is there resentment that it's too much is going to too few again so I would say the black middle class in South Africa assumes that the black lower class, uh, that the, the, the poor will resent these elites, some of whom became stratospherically wealthy after the end of apartheid, just because that was how the economy was set up for certain people to be stratospherically wealthy. And the, mid the, the middle class doesn't realize how aspirational it is, how much envy there may be, but and how much admiration, honestly, 
that some poor Black South Africans feel for heroes that they had who got rich. So there's always this expectation that South Africa is going to blow up because the poor are going to become very, very, very resentful of these new Black elites. But I think that the feelings are much more ambiguous. Uh, there's a mix of pride. Well, you know, at least we can take pride in these brothers who got there and anger. But the reality is that the problem in South Africa is that if you just averaged it out and you gave everybody the mean income and you completely redistributed, you would have a very, very poor country. Some people would feel like their lives have been totally ruined and, and other people would not feel that much better off. So there's a part of the country that it's the most unequal country on earth by far economically. And the, the, the desire to retain that in a weird way extends beyond what we would think. It's not just the 1% that are kind of imposing that on everyone. It's what everyone knows. So maybe for our last topic, because we're almost out of time, we could talk a little bit about uh, Black South African culture. And of course, there's more than one. There are several dominant, I guess, predominant groups with different languages and so on. But you talk about the songs, the music of Black South Africans that somehow pairs tormented lyrics with a mysterious harmonic serenity. And I, I'm a little bit familiar with, with uh, Black South African choral music, and it's, it's wonderful. It's very inspiring stuff and, and very easy to listen to. But I imagine the words, which I probably couldn't understand <laughs> because they weren't in English, uh, you know, are saying something very different. Yeah, it's, it's a country with an incredible, incredible musical tradition, including like a New Orleans jazz that was literally came from some warships that in the, in the, around the 20th century that came, came to South Africa. Yeah. It, there's a, and there's a long tradition of kind of its version of spiritual struggle songs, um, which would have a, the lyrics would have a fiercer edge for various reasons. They were maybe closer to achieving. They felt what they were fighting for, but Somebody does, uh, Malaika talks about that, those songs as ones that her generation still listens to. These, this kind of older black music, this music of kind of just getting out of the struggle. Um, and she wonders why the country, why, why they don't have new songs that are as touching and as meaningful as those old ones. And she speculates about that in, I think, an interesting way. That may be the... Uh... Having something to protest against is uh, really a good muse for music and writing and so on. I mean, I think we saw it in this country with the, the flowering of folk music, you know, during the civil rights era, which we haven't really seen since. So that's maybe a, a silver lining, a little bit of one anyway. There's a level of nostalgia. There's a book called Native Nostalgia by a great black writer in South Africa, but grappling with the nostalgia that that they didn't know they would feel, and it's very hard to talk about for their struggle. Anyway, it looks like we're out of time. So thank you so much, Eve Fairbanks, a journalist and essayist who's written a book, The Inheritors, An Intimate Portrait of South Africa's Racial Reckoning. It's really delightful to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, 
originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.